Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hello, and welcome back to Awareness to Action. I am thrilled to welcome Sam Canonis to the podcast today. Sam is a journalist and author of four books of narrative nonfiction. Sam's landmark book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, won a National Book Critics Circle Award for Best Nonfiction, and ignited awareness of the opioid epidemic happening in the United States. Sam's latest book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, explores the emergence of unprecedented drug trafficking in the U.S., contrasted with stories of Americans recovering community through simple acts of service and care. I'm a huge fan of Sam's work and feel really honored that he spent time with us on the show. The focal point of this latest book and of our conversation today is the power of storytelling and community as ways to connect and heal. It is hopeful and exciting, and I am so happy to share it with you. So Sam, let's start with you telling our listeners about yourself and how you found your way into the field of journalism and the art of storytelling. Well, I've uh, been a reporter for quite a long time. Um, I got into it without studying journalism in school. I, I went to UC Berkeley and, and didn't study. And I frankly, I don't think it's really worth studying as a major studying journalism. I got into it doing internships later, working part-time and that kind of thing. And little by little realized it was just the most fun I could possibly have. Uh, didn't have to wear a tie most of the time too. So that's good. And, and you just, you're, you're never bored, you know? And so I, I really dove into it very soon after I began to work in internships and really loved it. Um, I, I uh, became, uh, the, my favorite job really was, uh, was uh, when I was, I was a crime reporter uh, in a town called Stockton in California, which has a really notorious problem with crime. And, and there was my, that was my graduate school. I wrote four or five stories a day, learned. It was just a, a training that was invaluable and, and came out of it with an enormous confidence in my ability to write and my ability to accumulate facts on deadline and all that kind of stuff. And also, and, and then also wanting to tell longer stories. I, uh, I, went, I went down and, and long story, but I went down and eventually lived in, in Mexico for 10 years. Um, and that's where I began to write longer narratives, longer tales, you might say, uh, that I found to be fascinating. And Mexico is just packed with them. Unbelievable. It's like a huge, huge gold mine of great, bizarre, wonderful, crazy stories. And that's where I wrote my first two books, um, really mostly about Mexico. I really didn't. Came, I came back in, in after 10 years. I came back in 2004 to work for the LA Times, which was essentially my hometown paper because I'd grown up in Los Angeles and wanted really only to write about Mexico and, and immigration and all that kind of stuff. And ended up uh, writing, in fact, about the, the increase in heroin uh, trafficking in the country. And, and I could not understand why that was. There was no reason. I thought from the 70s, you know, we learned heroin was a dead end drug. Why would anyone go back to it, you know? And certainly why would there be this increase in, in demand for it. 
And I began to realize that, and so I focused on the, 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 the story of this one town in Mexico in the little, little town surrounded by a few little villages where everyone in that little county um, had perfected a system of selling heroin, black tar heroin retail by like the 10th of a gram, um, like pizza. So with an operator standing by and the addict would call the number and they, they'd dispatch a driver to go give them his heroin and that kind of thing. And that system they had sp spread pretty much, well, in many, many parts of the country. Uh, I found that fascinating, but I couldn't, still couldn't understand why they would have more demand for heroin, particularly east of the Mississippi River, um, because Mexicans and black tar heroin really had never been east of the Mississippi River up to that point. Uh, and it was only then that I began to realize that the story that I had stumbled, backed into essentially, was much, much bigger than the heroin story. And it was about our revolution in pain management. That, that held that we now could eradicate pain if we use this one tool, which we were afraid of using. And this tool was the opioid painkiller, narcotic prescription painkiller, Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocet, various things like that. And um, I had never heard of any of this. Uh, I really started this whole story without knowing what an Oxycontin was. All of this had taken place while I was still in Mexico. So I didn't really know a thing about it, right? And um, and so I, I spent uh, a lot of time learning about that, but I really backed into this story. And, 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 but then as I did, I realized, oh my God, this story is nationwide. And you began to see, it was about the time when you began to see in large numbers, people switching from being uh, dependent on pain pills to being cut off from those pills, moving to the street to buy them, but they're too expensive on the street. They can't afford that. And so they're now they're buying very, very cheap and very potent um, heroin from, 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 from Mexico. And that story had already been playing out in, in some, to some degree, frankly, since the late nineties really, but it really began to accelerate in 2010, 12, right that period. And that's kind of when I came upon this, I began to realize this was nationwide and, um, and thought this is a book and no one's really written the, the story of pain pills to heroin and all that. And so uh, it became uh, the book Dreamland, which was my, my third book, but my first book about the topic of, of our na national uh, addiction epidemic. So we talk a lot about awareness on this show. It's one half of our show's title. Um, so I want to talk about the publication of Dreamland and yes. what that did for public awareness because in my eyes, it was a huge, played a huge role in what is now a just a national knowledge, I feel, about the opioid yes, epidemic. Right. You know, it's interesting you asked that, Casey, because when I was writing Dreamland, I was struck. I couldn't believe one of the shocking things was that nobody wanted to talk about it. I, I really, I could not find, meaning families. Families did not want to make, bring this up. They did not want to be quoted. They did not want to make this, their story public. And so all across the country, you saw people dying of, you know, heart attacks. That's what the obituary said, or suddenly at home, you know, that kind of thing. And I began to, and, and so in my, my tr travels, I had a really difficult time finding people who wanted to talk about it. it. It was very hard. And I felt I was all alone. It was like this feeling of, of being out in the middle of the desert yelling, hey, this is going on. And nobody was really, everybody knows it, but nobody wants to acknowledge it. A kind of a national silence meaning that politicians didn't pay much attention to it because of the families don't, aren't, they're, they're not talking about their, their child or their husband or their, 
their uh, grandmother, uh, you know, whoever in the family was addicted, uh, you don't you don't get political action that way, right? And and so um, um, I published Dreamland, thinking the whole thing would die. I would be on to the next book very quickly. And um, that's the, also I would say this: the reason I subtitled the book "The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic" was because nobody understood the word opioid. You could not say that word with people have registering any kind of meaning with it. So opiate, I, I knew that very clearly. And so that's very, it was a very uh, clear decision on my part. I cannot use opioid in the title. No one was, knows what that is. The book comes out and to our enormous surprise, um, all it begins to gain traction and traction and traction. And pretty soon um, you begin, I begin to get, I begin to feel this. I lived this pre-Dreamland, before Dreamland, and after Dreamland, night and day, just night and day. It's incredible. All of a sudden, you begin to feel this like real surge, and it doesn't stop. It begins in the fall of 2015, about four months after the hardback comes out, and it keeps going for the next five years until COVID hit, really. And so it was every year there was, I felt it from speaking engagements. Amazing. First, it was like six or eight, and then it was double, and then triple that. And, and, and it was just after a while, it was like I was doing them constantly in, in those, those years from September 15 to the time COVID hit, I did, I did 265 speeches. I know it's, it's, it's a startling amount, but I mean, I felt, I know what it's like to write a book that you're very proud of yet nobody reads. And so when people want you to come speak, I'm like, I'm coming. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't want to uh, uh, turn your back on folks like that. But it was all, what was also fascinating was that happened because I think to to a significant degree due to Dreamland, people began to emerge from those shadows that I had found them in prior to the book's publication. Right, they begin to come outside and they become become public in on Facebook or at at local meetings or in their churches or wherever, all kinds of things. And that's when you begin to feel the politicians begin to take notice. The other interesting thing, I think, there was a definite uh, consequence of this was when when I published Dreamland, there were a grand total of three lawsuits against the pharmaceutical companies who were mostly involved in selling these drugs and, and marketing and promoting in these drugs. And I, neither one was, neither, none of the three was going anywhere. They were all stalled. And, you know, and, and I just really felt, I felt to myself, I remember feeling numerous times, there's no way this is ever going to be settled in the court of law because there's, there's, it's it just, these are powerful, powerful com companies and, and no one's ever going to hold them to account. Well, as this group of people began to expand and people began to come out of the shadows and you began to feel this awareness and I began to feel it most definitely in my life, it was unmistakable. We were stunned as was the published, my publisher, all, all, everyone was like, wow, what's going on? You began to see more and more hundreds and then thousands of these lawsuits. Um, by tribes, by cities, by counties, and then finally by attorneys general who brought to bear the uh, enormous power of their investigators, their attorneys who are very sharp, and subpoena power. And subpoena power begins to dislodge all these records that I, as a lowly freelance writer all, all, all alone, never would have been able to get a uh, hold of. Now you're seeing real people with, with serious legal power behind them and experience in how to do this. And they begin to dislodge all these records. And so you begin to read these amazing complaints. Tennessee has a fantastic one. Massachusetts also the first time they ever 
any complaint, criminal complaint ever mentioned the Sackler family by name. And you read these and it's just based entirely on emails, internal memoranda, board minutes, all this internal workings of, the, of these companies. And, um, and so I felt, um, I have felt for a long time, just like stunned. Okay, still, I, I can't get over that feeling, but also in, a, in, a, in, in, in some very strong way, uh, kind of vindicated in a sense like, that I knew this was a huge story. I knew that it was coast to coast. I knew it was all, and, and finally everybody else does too. And so the, the awareness that you were mentioning, asking about is, as I say, night and day. I know this because I, as I said, I lived it. I, you know, it was just so difficult getting even a few people to talk. And now everybody knows what the word opioid means. It's used commonly in headlines and on radio. And there's nobody who doesn't know what that word means. Now, when I knew that, that, that nobody, very few people who weren't medic, medical professionals knew what that term meant back when I was publishing the book. I firmly believe that we heal as people and communities when we are sharing our stories and when we're like truly listening and taking in other stories and letting that shape how we view the world around us. And it's so much easier to do that when you hear a story similar to yours and you're like, Oh, Oh, without a doubt. My family lived that. If, if another family can talk about it, we can talk about it. And then, I mean, it's just a snowball. People used to believe there was, they were alone within a, like a five mile radius. When in reality, there was probably somebody, two or three people down the street, just nobody knew. It was that silence. Um, you know, they used to, they say that this problem only gets, uh, got attention once it began affecting middle-class white people. I actually think the opposite is true. This, this problem was hidden because it affected middle-class white people because they did, they were mortified um, that their children or their husband or whoever happened to be in their family was ended up like this. And there, there was, they did their utmost to not publicize it. That's, I, that's what I ran into. It was only after they began to understand that they were not alone, that there was all over the country. And I think the book did that. I think the book was, uh, was uh, extraordinarily important in that re- realization. And then once you begin to move beyond that, then everybody knows somebody. And now I think the degree of separation for me is almost like two. It used to be like four or something like that. Now I think it's everybody knows somebody who knows somebody or something like that. You know, It's just a remarkable um, change. But you're right. Once I, I also, as a reporter, I firmly believe in the importance of storytelling. And once you can tell stories and people see those stories are like them, you know, then they gain some, some courage. And that's, I think, what a lot of people uh, thought. There's, a, you know, I think heroin addict and I think some guy, toothless guy, uh, eating from the trash behind, the, behind the, uh, uh, the, the railroad tracks or something like that. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's the image. And, and the opioid, opioid epidemic uh, crushed that image. That, Im- that certainly is a true image. It's just that it's not the only one by quite a bit. Absolutely. And it's only through hearing stories of, of, of more experiences than that, that you are able to see that it's bigger. The interesting thing is that, that we as neuroscientists now are very clear that we, we really almost like need stories as humans. We've always had stories. It's a way of co- forming community. In fact, you know, that's cavemen did it. We're listening, we're watching Breaking Bad and all these great shows on TV and, 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 and people have listened to stories, Homer, related stories by memory uh, in, in ancient Greece, you know, so all of this, 
was um, just so important and has been, storytelling has always been so important to, to us as, as human beings. It's the way we feel. We learn and feel through, through stories. And I think there's lots and lots of that now. Um, uh, neuroscience that shows that that's an essential thing. And Sam, one thing, one among many that I think you're very skilled at is offering neuroscience and the chemistry of substances as context for the stories you're telling. And I think that's why I enjoy your writing so much because I, I think that's a really important duo. And I'm wondering what draws you to that in your writing. Well, thank you very, very much. That's very sweet of you to say that. Um, I, I think that all, I, I, I think that when you're setting out to tell a big story, it helps to break it down into smallish uh, parts. It helps for the reader to understand. And one of the things I knew was the case, but I didn't have time. I didn't have, my poor little brain did not have space for in dreamland was understanding the neuroscience of addiction. But I began to understand as I got into this book that the story was crucial because I could then tell kind of twin tales again, you know, tale of, of, of traffickers marketing this, this ghastly, these ghastly synthetic drugs, fentanyl and methamphetamine. And, but then they're at the end of a continuum of people who are trying very hard to affect our brain chemistry. And at the opposite end of that continuum is Facebook software engineers, is gambling casino designers, is sugar manufacturer, soft, soft drink manufacturer, fast food, social media, uh, video games, all of that kind of stuff, all of those. And then at the, at the end, you get the Sinaloa drug cartel. You know, it's a, same, it's a continuum because they're all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to, uh, to, to play with, um, manipulate, I should say, um, our brain chemistry to make us want to use all those, those, those instincts that we evolved that are so important to our survival. They want to manipulate, manipulate those instincts to redirect them so that they will go towards our own addiction and eventually, in some cases, our own death, certainly in case of drugs of abuse, right? It's, it's, they know this or they, they can feel it if they don't know the science of it uh, purely. But um, all these folks are trying to do this and some of it's legal and some of it isn't. But the, the, the idea, the, 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 the aim is the same. And there's a lots of manipulation and lots of fiddling with an investment and how to do this better and marketing, of course. I mean, have you, have you noticed that no um, um, uh, fast food um, company ever changes its logo? That's because those logos are triggers for, I need, I need, boom, there's Carl Jr., there's Burger King, there's, there's Subway, there's, you know, I need that. And they're everywhere. So they're, so they want to reduce the friction for buying their stuff. And that's why fast uh, soda manufacturers fight massively over a space in 7-Elevens and grocery stores and, and, and what have you, because they want it to be very easy for you to come get their stuff. And that's why Coca-Cola's logo is never, never really, um, never really changed, you know? Um, all of that is part of this, uh, what we're seeing now. And I think to understand what's happening and also understand what our defenses can be, we need to understand the neuroscience. And what the other thing is that the neuroscience is now very comprehensible for anybody. If I can understand it, you can too, anybody can. 
believe me. Um, and so that's kind of where I, but I also wanted to understand it from a point of view sufficiently enough so I could tell a story about it. It's not just enough to give the data. You have to be able to tell stories uh, about it. And that's, and, 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 and as it turns out, uh, it's the neuroscientists themselves that sometimes give you the best, the best stories. Well, and I think it's easy to separate the concept of the scientific facts from something soft and, uh, undefinable like empathy, but when I feel when you have the science and you can understand why something is happening and why it's impacting a person in the way that it is and why it takes yeah. so long to heal, then you're able to see a bigger picture. And you're, you're able to understand that, that, that our, our, we have neural brain, brain chemistry that prov promotes or provokes empathy. It's the, you know, oxytocin. And, and when you tell stories, in fact, they've found that storytelling promotes the 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 creation of oxytocin the connection as a neurotransmitter connecting all these different parts of our of our of our of our brain so you you begin to that's when your wrapped attention due to a story is kind of that's what's kind of going on i think and um no i, th I think this is all part of a larger uh, larger understanding that that we now can uh, describe maybe 15 years ago i could not have they they wouldn't have known enough but they do now I want to I emphasize they because I'm not the person. I'm just a layman trying to understand. I just talk to people who are smarter than I am, and that's that. And try to tell, try to distill what they tell me. Well, you as a layman explaining it allows me as a laywoman to understand it. So there you go. There you go. Um, one thing I I really want to talk about because I I was thrilled when this happened was that Dreamland was adapted into a young adult book. Right. I think that's incredible, and I would love to hear from you why it's so crucial to involve young people in this broader conversation. Oh, yeah. Well, what happened was at these speeches that I kept giving, I would encounter parents, frequently it was parents or teachers, who would, parents would say, I don't have any way to talk to my kids about this problem. And I can see it's as serious as I can be. And then teachers would say, do you have anything besides Dreamland that I can give to my ninth graders, you know, 10th graders? Dreamland is probably not apt for them. And this went on for a couple of years, I would say, well, for a while anyway. And um, then my publisher said, you know, we should think about a, a YA edition, a young adult edition is what that stands for. And, and I said, yeah, you know, I've been hearing that. And so it was just kind of a combination of the two. Publisher wanted to do it. I've been hearing, and it made me feel too. There's all these kids coming up who don't really have a way of talking about this or understanding it. And so that is really kind of how that book uh, came about. And of course it was condensed, reduced, a lot of the vocabulary was simplified, et cetera, et cetera. And some of the stories were cut, but the idea behind the story, behind the Dreamland book was still intact. I think that's uh, exciting and important because these are not issues that are impacting people above whatever age it's impacting the younger generation. And I don't, I just, I remember seeing that it would, I have not read the young adult version, but uh -huh. I remember seeing that that happened and thinking that was really special. And then wondering how, how much more can we be doing to incorporate younger generations into this conversation? Cause it's impacting them. Oh, I think, you know, what we really need to do, I have to say, I, I very, very strongly about this. We need to um, marshal the forces of the neuroscientists, maybe not get them all into the classroom, but get what they know into the class. We need health classes, maybe 
two in a four-year career of a, of a high school student, uh, maybe eight weeks each or so, something like that. That's not about addiction. It's teaching you how your brain works. And along the way, you cannot avoid learning what happens to your brain. If you can learn what your brain looks like on prayer, on warm puppy, on storytelling, and methamphetamine and high-potency marijuana, you can learn, you can see this now, you can see images of this. And I would say that, that one of the most important things we need to do is get at least what neuroscientists have discovered in a condensed form and bring it into the classroom because I don't believe that the, the, the hectoring kids really works too well. I do have a faith that when you educate people about how something actually works and you can see images that go along with it, that you will affect some. Now, all of the kids, no, I, I mean, the, you know, adolescence is a gateway to drug abuse. I mean, basically the condition of being an adolescent. But I do believe that there are a lot of kids who kind of can can use this information. And I would say too, the drug trafficking world has given us as much as disastrous as fentanyl has been, particularly. Um, it has given us a gift, which is to say that we can now talk about drugs in the most heinous terms and not exaggerate one little bit. You know, this is the truth. They probably know, kids probably know of cases more than we even know, you know, in, in certain areas anyway. And, and, and so I think that, that it allows us now, you know, they have made these drugs so horrifying that, it, you know, it, we can talk about them without any hyperbole whatsoever. All the old myths that we used to scoff at, or at least I used to scoff at when I was a kid about drugs, they have all come true. They're all true now. One hit of heroin, whatever heroin is, will kill you. A hit of cocaine will kill you. Meth will drive you mad. You can see examples of this everywhere. So it seems to me like we're actually being given a gift amid all the catastrophe that these drugs are creating. Absolutely. Giving that knowledge of the neuroscience is empowering in a way that, you know, don't do drugs <laughs> as the only education is simply not. Well, we didn't know much about the drug, the brain back then, mm -hmm. I would say. And now we know so much more and it's all vivid in imagery. That's the thing. We can display this in imagery. We just don't describe it. You can have it there. You can see how these lights flicker off with high potency marijuana or methamphetamine or all that stuff. And you can see that when it's prayer or storytelling or uh, good friends or um you know, that kind of thing, it, 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 it illuminates again. And it, and it, you know, can see how the brain really thrives on that. Why? Because we have evolved for that. We have evolved for millions of years to need that, need that community feel, need that togetherness with other people, you know? So to me, that is really the, I would say that's really the, the, the essence of all this, that, that, we can see now what is beneficial to us through the imagery of our, of our brains and what damages us. And not that that would dissuade every kid from using dope, but it would give the, every kid the ability to um, become a, make free choices too sometimes, I think. I don't know. I may get a little bit um, naive about this, perhaps. I'm ready to believe I am, but, but I do believe that, that it needs to be tried in a far greater way. And I think bringing neuroscientists into the classroom, oh my God, they know so much and it's brilliant what they, what they know. Absolutely. So I want to talk about The Least of Us, your newest book, because it's a natural follow-up 
to dreamland. And I would love for you to tell our listeners about the inspiration for it and, and how it really came to be from the years following dreamland. Yeah. I mean, what, what happened was I, I was exhausted after writing dreamland. So I really didn't think I was going to do much more on this topic, but then um, I began to travel and I began to see, I also thought, you know, I was thinking really old school, like what's worse than heroin, you know? And then I began to travel and see and began to see what's worse than heroin is fentanyl and fentanyl began to become bigger. And then what really began to happen was it, it, it was, it was in some areas like Ohio and maybe Virginia too, I think, but, but certainly in Ohio and Kentucky and various places like that. And then it began to spread all over. And now it's really essentially everywhere, effectively everywhere in the United States. And that's just a stunning, stunning um, uh, fact. Um, along the way, I began to formulate ideas too uh, that I had conceived of really with Dreamland, but didn't have time in the book to really elaborate as much as I wanted to. Um, and, and these had to do with if, if we are being confronted by this horrible synthetic scourge out of Mexico, and then in our daily life bombarded with come-ons to try um, all kinds of, of legally legal and addictive substances and services, like, again, fast food or social media or whatever. These are powerful, powerful forces. So what is our defense? How can we as individuals or a street or a church or a neighborhood or whatever, a town, how can we defend ourselves from this? You know, um, keeping in mind that all of what they're looking to do is thwart the, the, the defense mechanisms that we have evolved in our brain over millennia, you know. And that's when I, I began to really conceive of the idea that the, only, the best defense, the only defense, but certainly really powerful defense is the idea that we are better together. We are, community is the way we have survived as a species. Why we are the most dominant species on the planet is because of that, right? So it has shown itself in our history of mankind to be remarkably resilient and powerful. And the problem is over the last 40 years, certainly in America anyway, we have decided that that doesn't really, yeah, that doesn't matter. That's, uh, it's messy. It is. Dealing with other people is messy. It's difficult. You don't like them. They don't like you. You have to mitigate, you have to, um, you know, kind of uh, 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 mitigate your ideas or change your, modify your ideas somewhat. Um, you have to kind of uh, 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 compromise, which people like to do, we've found apparently. Um, and so, to me, that became almost the guiding light idea of the book. The idea being, I'm going to tell the story of synthetic drugs. And then, but then the bigger story is what do we have? And, and, and I'm going to tell the story also of synthetic drugs, but also of, the, of the, the, the legal stuff that's so addictive and so massively marketed to us constantly. And then I'm going to tell the, the other part of the book, the other half of the book, the heart and soul of the book is really, what are we, um, what is our defense? It, it is, this it turns out, in my opinion, to be one of the most powerful forces we've ever known. You know, we know human beings die in isolation. They died in isolation when we were cavemen and they die in isolation today, right? And so to me, it feels like 
that is that became like the guiding compass. Now, um, I'm not a, a Christian. However, when I was looking for a, um, a kind of a compass for this book, I, I began to read widely, and I had read the Gospels in the Bible, but not recently. And, and so I picked them up again, and I read, and, and, and particularly read the, the Gospel of Matthew. And that's where I came up with the idea. So it, my, my compass was actually the Gospel of Matthew. That what you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. Jesus understood the power of community. That's what he was trying to get to get, get across, I think, to his disciples in, in Matthew, right? And so it became the compass for the book, in a sense. It's a much, as much as I had one, which was, it was tenuous, for sure. But, but it, it's, it, it, that became the way I, I kind of guided the book, the idea, the governing concept that our defense is, is working together as a community, bonding together. So we're, we're not leaving people you know, out um, to be eaten the way they were in the caveman days and all that. We're, we are, and, and, but I would say too, that and part, part of the root of this problem um, and as, as intractable and tenacious as this problem seems to be is because we've gotten away so much from the community aspect of our lives in America, deciding that in the last, certainly the last 40 years, this doesn't matter. We want to pay more taxes to achieve it. We don't really care about those, those towns that lost all those jobs that they're, they're on their own and they need to, 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 to man up, that kind of thing. Um, all of this became part of where I saw the country and why I saw this as such an intractable problem, but also within that, that's the, that's the, the lesson of the opioid epidemic, right? The opioid epidemic is telling us you're not, you're not living the way you need to be living. Re-examine how you're living. That's what pain tells us. Pain tells us, particularly chronic pain, frequent tells us time to start, stop eating crappy food, time to get exercise, lose weight, stop smoking, et cetera. All these things. Pain is a, a way of telling us something's wrong. You need to change something. Something's wrong. You need to change. Well, that's what the opioid epidemic, in my opinion, is telling us as a culture. Something's wrong. We need to change. We need to re-examine. I began to do that in my own life, frankly. I stopped drinking sodas. Just don't even drink them at all anymore. Uh, really got over the, the need for sugar all the time, which I definitely had a sweet tooth. Ate lots of crappy food, gained weight, blah, 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 all that stuff. It just, you know, I began to say, no, my, my consumer actions matter, you know, to the larger thing. And it, it, it just, I began to say, I'm going to take, we're in an age of, of lacking personal accountability, in my opinion. My, my ability, my choice was to say, I'm going to enforce some personal accountability with regard to what I consume. So I'm no longer, you know, threatened with some of these, these, these ailments that you get when you're, you know, when you're, eating badly, not getting enough exercise, et cetera, et cetera. Long-winded answer, I know, but that's what I got for you. Uh, I appreciate it. I think what you just said <laughs> about it being so messy to be in community and to get into other people's stuff is so real and so crucial. It's. It, I think it feels a lot easier to move forward in a bubble and to not look to our yeah. left and our right and to just keep on keeping on and focus only on our own stuff, but it only harms us. And it's easy to do that when you realize that all around you, everything's been created for you to do that. Mm -hmm. Cars, right. screens, every food, no matter how out of season you can get it in many supermarkets, you can, you can live we our prosperity is our own curse in a sense because it has provided us with so much that we don't need people the way they did not even 
30 years ago, you know, and more, of course, going way back into history. Um, it's just all these things are there and allow us to feel like we did it on our own, you know, kind of like we bootstrapped our way up to, you know, when all around us is people providing us with all that we need to not just live, but prosper frivolous stuff, you know, like I need my large frappuccino every single day, you know, well, yeah, that's going to lead to some serious problems, but um, kind of like prosperity, it, it's a great thing. Uh, nobody wants to be poor. I certainly don't. On the other hand, there are dangers that come with it too. And we need to understand uh, what they are. And part of them have to do with the fact that, that frequently we are encouraged to sit and do nothing and, and, and not be the active uh, and be around other people the way we actually evolved to, to require. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know how I want to ask this, but I know that a that this book, The Least of Us, was inspired in many ways by conversations you had following Dreamland, where you were meeting people who were yes. now willing to share their story, having read other stories. Correct. And, you know, you said 265 speeches, I think. Yes. Ton. I mean, I can't imagine how many people you interacted with. And then all of a sudden that's cut off. We're in the pandemic. You're not doing any of these events in person. And now this book comes out, you're going and doing speaking events in person again, yes. to some degree. And I'm sure now you're hearing from people who have lost loved ones oh, yeah. during a time where our number of deaths by overdose skyrocketed. So these deaths happened in isolation and the grieving has happened in isolation and now we're like kind of coming out and being able to talk about it more. What is that like? Well, I'm still not there yet. I'm going to find out. I think the event in, in Luray in a couple of weeks is, is going to, is one of the, I think it's the second one that I've done in person and I'm very looking forward to it. Um, uh, I missed very much. I did not miss the travel, but I missed really so much the interaction with people, hearing stories, um, listening to people, uh, hugging people. Man, I hugged so many people. You'd not, you do not believe it, Casey. It was just, you know, because it's hard to know what to say to people who say, you know, my nephew died and I'm raising his, his daughter, you know, that kind of thing. Um, what else do you do? I didn't, I don't confess. I confess. I don't know really the answer to that. Um, and so I am greatly looking forward to it. And I do believe that it's time to do that. Um, we're kind of moving beyond COVID perhaps in some way, who knows? I, I don't, wouldn't be the one to ask, answer that question, but, but I do think it's time to kind of move together and move out of the doldrums and move together in a, in a, in a more productive way. And I think what I'm hoping is that some of these speeches that I'll be giving over the next several months, really next year, I think, um, will be ways of uh, communities and counties, towns and what have you, uh, igniting, again, a conversation, igniting awareness, bringing together folks who, who don't know each other, even in small counties or small towns, they may not know each other, you know, that's what I found striking. I'm from LA. And you know, I don't know anybody in LA It's an enormous, enormous town, I figured out those those small rural towns in, in Virginia, or wherever people, everybody knows each other, well, not really, or they don't know each other well enough to work together, you know, that kind of thing. And so I'm hoping that will be one result 
of these speeches, it feels very um, fulfilling, I would say, to be able to, to do that. And that's really one of the main reasons I did so many talks is because after a while, I just was realizing that this was a huge, huge thing. This was one of the most important social movements of our time, except for nobody writes about it that way because there's no organization to, there's no press release. There's no president of it. You know, it's just all kinds of grassroots at the most basic way. But I could feel that as I was traveling the country and, and I was just stunned by um, it, it became like this thing, like, I don't want to stop doing this because um, very few reporters are able to live this kind of experience. It is sublime. And I didn't want to, to lose that. And then COVID came along and, and all the speeches evaporated. It was such a devastating thing for so many people in this country. I hate to say it, but for me, it was actually kind of a benefit because I just sat in my office and wrote for a year and I finished the least of us. I wouldn't have been able to do that with all the speeches that I had planned this year, that last year. This would come as no surprise to anyone who knows me, but I was crying some big tears uh, in one of the last chapters of The Least of Us. You write very eloquently about why, why there's a case for hope amidst this opioid epidemic and, and why, why we can hope for change, essentially. Um, I would just love to spend some time talking about that, and I think it feels... I think it felt especially moving to me because we find ourselves in a strange time in history, like you said, hopefully moving out of this pandemic a little bit soon and kind of given the chance to, to reset and rebuild in some ways, I hope. Yeah. And I, th I think there's nothing guaranteed about this, but I think that, that this epidemic is showing us, displaying to us if we'll look at it that way, if we'll understand, if we'll take its lesson, that, that the idea that, that the defense is community, and, and that is an immense, enormous defense. That's not a plaything. That's something that will work, but needs to be tendered and, and, and tended to and nurtured, like a flower, kind of like a little plant and so on. And we, we, we spend a lot of time uh, taking it for granted and even stomping it, you know? Uh, in our culture uh, for many years, it seems to me. And I think that's too bad. Uh, but we get what we pay for, in a sense, too. Um, that's what the opioid epidemic, I think, in one sense is, you know. But I, to me, that's, it became, I mean, I know people have said, well, this is such a dark book, Sam. Well, you know, the weird thing is, Casey, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as a very hopeful book, and one that is not prescriptive. It's not, you're not gonna read my book saying, okay, this is um, the five things we need to do in our county to, you know, no, it's more of an attitude. It's an attitudinal thing. The stories that I try to tell that take up half the book of, of people hard at work in the smallest ways, least sexy ways, nobody's saving the world. Nobody's looking for applause. Nobody's looking for, you know, uh, be, you know, feelings of no and virtue. They're just doing the, the, the work. All of that is really kind of an approach to life more than an exact policy that your county or your town can enact, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, I don't know, uh, you know, the, the rest of the country. I, I just know where I live and, and I would be very remiss. And I, I hope I'm not so arrogant as to ever suggest this is what you all need to do. I, I, I think there are some things that have been effective, um, but they don't work in alone. 
none of the stuff that I think actually is helpful works works alone. It's not like a panacea alone. That's what we got us into this. You know, we had one pill for every human being will eradicate human pain. It was an insane, insane idea, you know, and yet if you go not that long ago, you could see doctors and pain specialists and pharma companies, of course, espousing this idea. And, and, and it doesn't, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, and, and proved to have in, it helped some people certainly, absolutely, without a doubt, it also uh, created enormous co collateral damage. So the, I, f I find my book hopeful and I push back on people's, this is such a dark book. Well, no, it is. There's parts of it are dark because that's where we are living right now. But, but the other parts of it are, we have an enormous opportunity um, and, and it's a beautiful thing and it's a wise thing and it's, and it's a time honored thing. That is the point. And we, we, this goes way back. This is part of who we are. The dope is, is doing its utmost to change every part of the, 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 our personality that would come together with other people and just refocus it on getting more dope and then dying. That's what drugs of abuse do. Um, and, and I think the fight, the, the pushback is when we begin to work together in ways that we've, we've decided in the past 40 years, I think we didn't really care to, um, you will see that the, the solutions begin to present themselves in ways that were not possible when everyone's kind of like siloed up. I, yeah, I also find it to be a very hopeful book and a reminder that we have to be paying attention where we are to who's around us and what our communities need, because what my community needs truly is not what your community needs in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and to, to find the nuances there and right. to approach them with a, a lot of care. I mean, I, yeah, I, I felt encouraged, encouraged by this book and this compilation of stories and science. And it certainly is heartbreaking it's a, it's a hopeful and heartbreaking book. It's hard to read about lives so altered by substances, but also to know that we have the power to make some change. That's very much, um, to me, it's very clear that that's possible. It's, um, it's not easy. And we have to, we have to look at this as calling on us to change certain things about how we live. Really. I believe that very clearly. And I've, I've tried to adopt some of that in my own life. Um, we had a guest on this podcast a while ago named Kim, who um, she told, you know, the starfish story where the kid is yeah. throwing a starfish back. Someone says, you know, you're not making a difference. And he says, well, it makes a difference for that starfish. She, she came on the show and she was like that we, we don't need to be moving one starfish at a time. Now we have different tools. We have buckets. We can be doing more. And I, I love that concept. And I think of it often because I, I think, I guess I'm bringing this up because I feel that this book does the same thing of saying, yes, let's look at the individuals and how we can help individual people. And to know that each, each time we're making a, a small difference in someone's life, that's a, that matters but we can do more. Like we have different tools. Now we have ways of connecting and working in our yep. communities that are different than before. We have different knowledge now post pandemic. Well, yeah, as much sure. As we sure. And I think, yeah, I think it's important to keep both ideas in mind though. 
I'm, I'm afraid that when, when you begin to think too broadly, um, it, it becomes consumed by, by the numbers and how many people we, we, oh, we haven't helped enough people when in fact, and that, that's very important to do that, but it's also important to keep in mind that, that you know, this is a slow process and we're, we're sometimes dealing with it individual life by individual life. Couldn't agree with that more. And it's the small wins. I think I think of that often in in my own work at a treatment center. Thinking of good, you should do that. I think that's very important. You need to do that. That's really, yeah. really, really important. I tell my writing students. I've done a lot of writing workshops, and I tell my writing they all always want to write a book. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. We all want to write a book, but it's very, very hard. And I've written four, and it doesn't get easier. Um, the main thing is write one story and write it really well and then write another story and after a while you look back and you've got like four or five and they're pretty good and all of a sudden you gain energy and encouragement and enthusiasm from that whereas if you keep on looking at well i'm really a long way from writing the book i wanted to write i'm just going to give up i think that that is also it's just such an important thing so it's very important in your job to make sure that you don't get swallowed up by that um i'm sure you won't but i'm just saying that this is such an important thing um to keep the focus small and local and 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 you know on that rather than i'm i've got to save the world you know yeah and and what a joy and a gift to be able to celebrate the small wins with people who are doing the very hard work of recovery to say yeah all right you didn't use yesterday we're counting that as a win. You used every other day this week, fine. But you didn't use yesterday and we're counting that as a win. Or you kept an appointment or you felt um, motivated yeah. to reach out to to a sponsor. You know, whatever it is, it's, uh, yeah. it's thrilling. It's tiny, small, snail-paced, thrilling work. Yeah, but that's what happened with the um, people coming out of the shadows after uh, Dreamland came out and there was all this new awareness Little by little, it happened little by little all over the country. And, and individually, it meant, meant very little. But overall, what it meant was there's all these lawsuits. Now, there's all this new uh, budget prior, prioritization in favor of this. There's all this new awareness, rethinking all these different things, because all across the country, in the smallest of ways, all these people came out of the shadows and were heard and seen and felt and all that. That's the point. You know, so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Sam, I, I so appreciate your time. And I want to ask you our final question that we ask everyone. Okay. Uh, is, What's that? What does the process of awareness to action mean to you? The process of awareness to action. Well, it, it simply means that once you are aware of what's happening around you and other people involved and, uh, and that you are not alone that action becomes all of a sudden exciting or a new possibility that you hadn't considered before. You know what I mean? It, it, in fact, that's when it really happens. You begin to start and individuals come out and pop, 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 pop all over. And all of a sudden you look around and, oh my God, there was four people lived right, right near me on the same three block strip. And they all had the same problem. I never knew this. Well, now we form a, a unit. Now we're able to, to go to the council meeting and, and pretty soon the council's you know, not, you know, responding and is responding in some way, you know, that is what it means. It's awareness 
in the smallest ways bring action brings action in the larger ways and that's what happened with the lawsuits if you ask me it happens with budgeting more money for neuroscience research all i mean amazing changes have taken place because little by little all these people all over the country and again what i consider to be one of the great grassroots political social political movements of our time um uh came out of the shadows well said <laughs> agreed um sam thank you for being here with us i also want to invite everyone listening, well, I guess those who are local, uh, if you would like to hear more from Sam and uh, hear a lot more about The Least of Us, we're going to be having a conversation with Sam and Lou Ray on February 23rd at 6 p.m. I will put the information about that in the episode description, but um, Sam and I are really going to be diving into what is contained in The Least of Us, uh, the hopefulness of, of the community efforts that we've touched on in this conversation. And we would love to see all of you there. So look for that in the episode description. Sam, thank you so much. Oh, Casey, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you for such uh, thoughtful questions. I really so appreciate them. Thanks for listening. And of course, thank you to Sam for joining us on the show. If this conversation left you wanting to learn more, I encourage you to do two things. One, read Least of Us. It is, as I said, both heartbreaking and hopeful, and it has my highest recommendation. Rent it from your local library or find it online using the link in the episode description. Second, join us for an in-person conversation and question and answer with Sam in Page County, Virginia. This event will be held February 23rd, 2022 at 6 o'clock p.m. You can find more info using the link in the episode description. I really, really, really hope we see you there.